You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with us, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his, are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen, amen. All right, let's hear for Logan. So Friday night, I got to have dinner with Logan and his fiance Cassidy, um, at Tim and Kathy's house. Tim is one of our elders, and Kathy. And um, Kathy made the most amazing tostadas that you will ever experience in your entire life, not you, me, that I've experienced, because I experienced them, and they were awesome. Um, one of my mentors used to say it was so good that it made my tongue slap my brain. And so, um, and uh, after dinner was over, um, they brought out apple pie. Um, by the way, I had my dessert for the week. Um, yeah, I haven't told my wife that yet. We only get one a week, and so that was mine. Um, I was maybe going to try it. No, anyway. Um, so uh, apple pie and then ice cream on top, and they put a piece in front of me. But there wasn't very much ice cream uh, on it, and so I was sitting there, and I was like, eh. And I looked over, and Jose, uh, who just came on staff with us, uh, he's our family discipleship director, um, I realized he didn't have a piece. And so I graciously slid mine over to him. Um, so that the next piece that came hopefully had more ice cream, which it did. It had two scoops instead of one. And so, um, but then, like, after it was all said and done, you know, your, your stomach, like, feels good, but it doesn't. Um, and then, like, all night I had, like, that onion taste in my mouth, which I love while it's happening, but not afterwards. And then, um, then the next day you wake up, and I wanted more. I wanted more of those tostadas, but, but they were gone. They were done. Like, it was over. And um, that's kind of how life is, is... Why are we never satisfied? Do you ever feel that way? Like you just, like you get these things, you experience these things in this life, and then you're not satisfied. Um, Have you ever found yourself standing in front of the fridge uh, that's full and looking around being like, hey babe, we don't have anything to eat. Yeah, no no pointing fingers. Um, Or you're standing in your closet that has like a hundred articles of clothing and being like, man, I've got nothing to wear. Like we, 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 we have all these blessings that the Lord has given us, yet we want more. We're never satisfied. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get along with people. Because <laughs> um, they're not satisfied and I'm not satisfied. Um, that's why it's so hard to get along with family. Um, why, do you, why do we think that marriage is struggle or 
sibling relationships aren't like best friends for life all the time. Biffles, right? Or, or why, do we, why do we have fights with our parents and our friends? I mean, we tend to spend more than we earn, tend to struggle with envy. We have this incessant need to be entertained, at least just me. I don't know. I just, I, I just want to be entertained all the time. I want to do something. I don't like just sitting around. I feel bored, right? You ever hear that from your kids? Mom, I'm bored. It's like you have 50 million things you can do right now, but we're bored. We struggle because we're not satisfied. The problem is, is that we long for a perfect life. Yet, life will never be perfect. Write that on the next birthday card that you send to somebody, right? Like, you know, we long to life to be perfect. Hope you had a great year, but life will never be perfect. Happy birthday. Um, we were created by God to experience complete satisfaction in him. I mean, think of Adam and Eve. God created this beautiful garden and placed everything in it that they needed to be fully satisfied. And he takes them, after creating them out of the dust of the field, and place them in this garden where he have, has given them everything that they could ever desire or want or imagine. To fill every desire, to be satisfied fully, completely. And what does the devil do? He tries to convince them that there's more. Create in them some sort of dissatisfaction with what God has provided for them. So that they're standing in front of a full closet going, there's got to be more. A full fridge, there's got to be more. And then what? Sin enters. The devil destroys the perfection that God created for us to experience. And even though perfection is now broken, we still try to create this perfection on earth. So we want to have the perfect marriage. That's what we strive for. We want to have this perfect marriage. We want to have the perfect baby, right? We think, oh, we, we finally got pregnant, and then we have this beautiful baby, and they have ten fingers and ten toes, and, and they're just going to be the best kid in the world. And then we want to create the perfect meal and experience the perfect job, the perfect home, the perfect vacation, the perfect friendship. We want to have the perfect retirement down in sunny southwest Florida, playing golf every day and going fishing. And then it's not perfect. The baby starts to grow up and cry in the middle of the night and say no. The marriage isn't as easy as we thought it was going to be. Things begin to struggle. Finances begin to go like this. And, and you start seeing your 501k, 401k go like this, right? You start freaking out. What is this going to mean? I'm not going to be able to retire down in, in the place I want to retire. And we start freaking out because the perfection that, that we desire, it, it begins to break down. We crumble. And we even get mad at God. Why? Because we know that in this world we're not going to experience perfection. Therefore, we have to remember that we're not going to ever be fully satisfied. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He's an author and a writer. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He says this. I find in myself, a, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
Here's the solution to this problem, that we long for a perfect life, yet it's never going to be perfect. God redeemed our brokenness in Jesus so we can experience perfection in him forever. That's the solution. There is a place, a forever place, eternal place that God has created for us so that we may once again experience what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden before sin entered, where we will be fully satisfied, that we will experience full enjoyment in him for all of eternity, something that we will never be able to wrap our minds around. This idea of eternity, this idea of forever, this idea of heaven is something that is probably one of the biggest aspects of our faith as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, yet probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of our faith. We have a culture where media is huge, right? Everybody knows, you know, there's movies that come out, and we sit and we watch these things, and there's pictures and artists. And so what happens is, is over time, these traditions grow. Somebody paints a, a, a picture, and then there's an interpretation that this is what heaven's going to be like. And then someone makes a movie, um, and it's, uh, it's about the rapture and what that's going to be like. It's called Left Behind. And then, and then all of a sudden, we start to watch these things, and we begin to think that they're biblical explanations of what's coming to come, what's going to happen. And we begin to fabricate these traditions, these ideas, these pictures in our mind that are actually not seen in Scripture, We've just over the years thought, oh, there, yeah, this is what heaven's going to be like. And so we think we're going to be driving around in a Ferrari on these streets of gold, living in these mansions. And for us, that's what heaven is going to be all about. That's not what the Bible talks about heaven as. Yeah, there's going to be streets of gold, but we're not going to be walking around being like, oh, look at these streets of gold. That's so awesome. No, it's going to be the asphalt that lines our streets that we walk on and spit our gum on when we're at a stoplight. It's not going to mean anything. We're not going to be focused on the gold streets. We're going to be focused on him who made those streets. And although I don't have time today to break down all there is to know about heaven, um, we're coming to a, a passage of scripture that Paul begins to use a phrase about God and heaven and riches. And I want to talk about it this morning. Is that cool with you? I love it. It's going to be great. So let's, uh, if you don't have a Bible or if you haven't opened it up yet, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verses 6 and 7. So in context, this is Paul writing to the uh, church in Ephesus. This was a church that he had planted, and, and now Paul is in prison, and his heart is longing to be back with the people that are in Ephesus. And so he's writing this letter to them. It's a letter of love. It's a pastoral letter that he is, he is writing to them because he loves them so much, and he's beginning to explain things that God is revealing to him while he's in a really difficult spot in prison, but he wants them to know about. He's heard of their faith, he's heard that the church is growing, and he wants to make sure that they fully understand who God is and what he has done for them. And so last week, uh, I believe last week was Easter, right? Time is all over the map. So last week we talked about the first part of this passage, 1 through 6, and we see that in while we were still sinners, while we were dead, right, this isn't a morality game. This is about the fact that we are spiritually dead, and that God left the perfection of eternity and came down and wrapped himself in human flesh and lived a life that you and I couldn't live, a life of perfection, and then died absorbing the entirety of the wrath of God upon sin, upon himself, so that you and I may have life. Not that we can merely just be good people, but that we can have life 
and life in him forever. And so we get to verse 6. So let's start at verse 5. Even though, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. Oh man, so beautiful. He may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. I want to pray for us, and then I want to dive into these two verses, verses 6 and 7, because it's awesome. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would remove me from this, and that we would hear your heart and your voice, so that we may long, that we may desire, that we may hope for all of eternity, spending it with you and you alone. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the immeasurable riches of forever. And here's what he starts out with. He raised us up and seated us with him. This should absolutely blow your mind. That you at one point were an enemy of God. That you at one point were dead in your trespasses and sins. And not only did God save you from that. Not only did he bring you from death to life and said, hey, now you have life. Now you just kind of go live off somewhere else, you know, off in the distance. And I'm going to be this distant God that's kind of way over here. And you're way out there doing your own thing. No, but he brings you near and he actually raises us up with him. And seats us on his throne with him. Like there is a nearness here that we have to understand and know. That God has created us to be near to him. And when we profess faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord, meaning king, the authority in our life, and savior, the only way, the only truth, and only life, that God raises up us up to new life in him. That we become alive and then he seats us on his throne with him. This is a position of intimacy. You ever sit on a chair with somebody? I was at a soccer game yesterday and like, I had three of my daughters sitting on top of me. Like, they're not going over to other dads and sitting on their laps. They're coming to me, their dad, and sitting on my lap. There's a a level of intimacy that I have with my daughters that no other dad has. Why? Because I'm their dad, and they're my daughter. That's the level of intimacy that God desires for you. That you would sit with him on his throne. That's such a beautiful picture that we have here, and it, it even goes on. And then he talks about these heavenly places. So I looked this up. This, this Greek word is, is pretty fantastic because it's found five times in the New Testament. Guess, guess how many books it's found in? Only this one. This one letter, Paul, for some reason, uses this term five times. The heavenly places. And it's a little confusing because we think there's like heaven, hell, earth. Right? And then we hear heavenly places and it's like, oh, that sounds multiple. And we're trying to wrap our mind, like, is there more than one heaven? Is there, like, these levels? And, like, and so that's where Catholicism begins to get purgatory, and they begin to get these, like, levels. And then there's other passages that we can go to and see these things. And I don't want to get into all of the things that we may not fully understand. The Bible says that part of the gospel is a mystery to us. 
part of, part of what we're going to read here is going to be a mystery. It's fully revealed in Jesus, but some of the things we're not going to fully be able to wrap our minds around. And, and one of those things may be the fact that we don't fully understand what each one of these heavenly places may look like. But here's what we do know. God is there, and Jesus is in full authority there. That's what we know. God is there in these heavenly places. He is fully there, and Jesus is the authority in all of those places. Where do I get that from? A little earlier, Paul explains it. Ephesians 1.20. It says, When God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That means God's there, and he's seated there, and then he takes Jesus and places him at his right hand. His right hand is the hand of power, the hand of authority. And that's what he does. He seats Jesus in this place of authority over all things. That's what we see in the first chapter of this book. And so what we know about the heavenly places is that God is there and that Jesus is in full authority. And so I know that for some of you, you have this like incessant need to know more and more details. And we can create a class if we want. Tim, we can talk about putting together a class and have a deep dive in Revelation and talk more about heaven. But here's what we need to know. There is a place where God is fully present with his people, with his children. And day and night, we will worship and be with him in an intimate relationship. And Jesus rules over this place. And that's good news for us. And then he goes on, he says, the importance of uh, this word, so that. So he raises us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places, in Jesus Christ, so that. This is a transition phrase. God did all of these things, his death and resurrection, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. It is going to take an infinite amount of ages, something that we can't wrap our minds around here on earth because we're like confined by time. We're confined by time. And so, so there's going to be an infinite number of ages where God is going to continually pour out his blessings upon us. So it's not like we're going to get to heaven and all of a sudden we're just going to experience it all in the full. Like, it's just going to be all of eternity where we're just going to be receiving more and more and more and more blessings of his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. He's going to lavish it upon us. Like, they're unending. And if we can't wrap our minds around this, in Romans 8, he even goes even further and he says this, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He gave you his son. He left eternity, eternal perfection to come down into our mess, into our brokenness, to restore all of us to know him and love him and experience him. Like the good news here is that there is going to be immeasurable riches for all of eternity and we're going to be able to experience that. Heaven's not this place where we're just kind of floating around like Casper the ghost. Like, it is a real place that all of eternity, we are going to be restored to what God had originally intended for us to enjoy full satisfaction in him. So there's three observations I want to make about forever. You still tracking? Are we excited about this? I'm excited. I was reading this all week, and I'm like, I can't wait to share this. So three observations about forever. First one, this world is not our forever home. That's a huge observation about forever, is that this is not it. The Bible talks about this in a tent analogy. 
And I love it because it's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Another letter that Paul wrote to a church. And he's trying to help them grasp this idea of what this life is like. He says this. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heavens, in the heavens. For in this tent, right now, here on this earth, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. If you're a believer, we have to stop living like this is it. So often, I live life like this world is my permanent home and this is all I get. And the Bible's clear. This world is not my forever home. And we have to stop living like it is. I love what Paul Tripp says about this. He says, living in this present world is designed by God to produce three things in me. Longing, readiness, and hope. And so the first observation is that this world is not a forever home. Second one is that there are consequences when we try to make this world our forever home. We're going to experience consequences when we try to make this world, kids, when we try to make this world our forever home, when we try to think that the food and the iPads and the, the, the sports and all the stuff that we're experiencing is our forever home. Like if, this, like if I have a great game, life is good. If I have a bad game, life is terrible. If we think that this world is all we get, there's some serious consequences to what we're going to experience. And this is coming from a book, Forever, by Paul Tripp. And if you want to read more about what we're going to experience in eternity, this is a great book. Paul Tripp is an amazing pastor, amazing author. It's called Forever. I'd really highly recommend it. Here are the consequences. One, we live with unrealistic expectation. We live life with unrealistic expectations. This is where it comes back to what we talked about right in the beginning. We try to make this life have the perfect marriage, perfect kids, perfect everything, perfect job. And then when those things don't live up to the thing that we want that is perfect, then everything begins to crumble. We're con continually let down. Second one is that we begin to focus too much on self. The whole universe begins to revolve around me. All right, maybe not in your life, just me, right? That everything revolves around me. It's a, it's a selfie world that we live in. If you don't know what a selfie is, it's when you take your phone that now has a camera built in, and, and instead of taking a beautiful picture of the God's creation and like the Grand Canyon, you put yourself in the main of the frame, right? And then you take the picture. That's the world we live in. It's all about me, what I want, what I can get, how many likes I can get. And so it's all about the satisfaction that I want for my life. And if this world is all there is, then I need to get as much as I can as possible. So we are focused too much on self. And then by doing that, we are asking too much of the people that God has surrounded us with. So we begin to place these expectations on people so they meet our every desire. Parents, if you ever really reflect on how you're raising your kids or have raised your kids, you ever try to 
think that over life maybe you tried to live vicariously through them. So you weren't the football star you wanted to be and so you tried to make them the football star that you wanted them to be or, or the musician that you never were or, or the student that you never were. We start placing these expectations on the people around us in such a way that makes them crumble. Why? Because it's all about me feeling better about myself. So we ask too much of the people around us. Sorry, this is heavy. You guys are like, <gasps> but it's true. We begin to make this world our home and then we begin to have these consequences. And then we begin, we begin to become controlling and fearful. Anybody else deal with anxiety? Anybody else like to be controlling? Try to control every aspect of every single part of our lives? We question the goodness of God. Right? Anything bad happens. One of the consequences is that we begin to question God and his goodness. We begin to shake our fists at God. Why, God? Why did you do this to me? Instead of being thankful. We're living more disappointed than thankful. Right? So we become these negative people. Right? It's like uh, one of the things that, uh, a word that's thrown around my house with my kids is it's not fair. You ever get that one? Do you ever play that card? Right? You look at your neighbor's new, new car. Man, it's not fair. I work hard. I work harder than him. He's home half the day. Why does he get that cool car? Right? Our kids, that's how they live. Right? One of my girls, I, I tried to do a daddy-daughter date on Friday with every single one of my girls. I actually did it. Um, and so I went out with each one of my girls. And no matter where I took that girl and went and spent time with them, they saw the things that the other girls wanted. And they're like, oh, man, why does she get to go to Fabulo? Right? I'm like, I, we just... We just went to lunch. I spent 20 bucks on you. I spent $5 on her. You know, like, but it's, it's, never, it's never enough. It's not fair. And then, because of all those things, we lack motivation and hope. Depression sinks in. Because we're trying to be satisfied for the things of this world, and it's temporary. Just like the satisfaction I experienced from the Tostados. Temporary. It was good. It was awesome. But Temporary. So what we need to do today, and this is what I feel like God was calling me to do in my own time with him, was to take an inventory. Take an inventory of my life. Look at these things. If you have a phone, you can snapshot it. Just take an inventory. God, where am I beginning to um, make this world my home? And where am I experiencing these consequences? And then just bring it to God. Let God do what God does. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. Now, I want to be very clear on this. When we go through these inventories, um, because we all deal with stuff like this. I, I think that there's not one person in this room, I know that there's not one person in this room that can look at that list and be like, oh, I don't deal with any of that stuff. Uh, if you are, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but when we do this, I think we can get very self-deprecating in these things. And, and what I want to say is that there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation uh, causes us to remove ourselves and go further away from God. That's a tool of the devil. So when we're feeling condemnation calling us to retreat from God because God doesn't want to see us, we're a bad person, we start self-deprecating, we start running from God, that's a tool of the devil, that's not of the Lord. When we feel conviction, what it's supposed to do is cause us to go closer and wrap our arms around God, go sit in his lap, right? Because that's a tool of the Holy Spirit to cause us to know that we are outside of the best that God has for us. God wants us to experience his goodness. 
He knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us. And when the Spirit begins to convict us, when we look at a list like that, we should never go and say, oh, woe is me. Right? God doesn't want to talk to me right now. I'm such a bad person. No, we should run to his throne of grace, the Bible says in Hebrews, with confidence knowing that we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need. That's the entirety of the second book, uh, or the second chapter of Ephesians. You were a sinner. God knows you were a sinner. And he saved you, in spite of you. He didn't save you because you earned it. He didn't save you because you're super awesome. He saved you because he loves you. He knew your sin. He knows the depths of your sin even more than you do. And he still loves you. And so when you see this stuff and you start being like, man, like, this part of my life is out of whack, that's why it's so important to live in community with one another. That's why God has formed the church. Because I can go to Jose tomorrow when we're hanging out, I can be like, hey man, like, this week I've been going through this and I'm really being controlling and fearful right now in my life. And these are the areas I'm really struggling with. Can you pray with me? And he'd be like, yeah, man. Like, do you have any encouraging verses throughout the week that maybe you can send me that talk about this? Absolutely. That's what community looks like. That's what God has intended for us to have. And so what we need to do and what we need to understand is that when we're feeling the spirit stirring in us, don't run from God. Run to God because he loves you and he only wants what's best for you. So we take an inventory um, and what these things uh, do and when we're struggling with these things and when we begin to make this world our forever home, the picture here, and the best picture I can, I think, analogy I can come up with is how they condition elephants and how they train elephants. It's a horrific thing what they do, and so I'm not at all advocating to this, but when an elephant is super, super young, um, they tie a rope around an elephant and they put a stake in the ground. And then when the elephant tries to pull away and go off, they, they beat the elephant. And it's terrible. It's horrific. But what it does is it begins to condition the elephant to know that they can't leave and remove the rope and the, the stake that's in the ground from them. And the elephant grows up in that environment. And then the elephant goes from like half a ton to one ton to two tons. And it just grows. But they still have the elephant tied up with this flimsy little rope and a stake in the ground. And he doesn't go anywhere. He is fully capable of walking away from that but he's been so conditioned by this process that he doesn't even attempt it because he feels this rope that's wrapped around their leg this is what the devil does to you and me he convinces us that this world is our home and that we need to try to suck as much out as possible from this world as possible and what he does is he conditions us by tying this rope around us and putting a stake in the ground and trying to take our mind off of eternity Paul Tripp calls it eternity amnesia and then we don't think about life in light of eternity. We only think about the here and now and the present. And we stay tied up to this thing when we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are fully capable of going and walking away because that's what God has done. He has given us his spirit to walk away from this. But we've been so conditioned to just stay right here because, uh-oh, we don't understand it all. right? We have this rope around us and we can't go anywhere. And the, God wants us to break free from that. That's why he has sent his son, Jesus. That's why he gives us the power of his Holy Spirit. So, here's the third observation about forever. We must fight daily for eternal joy. We must fight daily for eternal joy. Now, let me clarify. This is not three steps to a better you. This is through the power of the Holy Spirit and you surrendering your life to him, going to him daily to know that he is going to do a work in you to remind you continuously 
that that string does not hold you. And here's what it is. One, remember what Jesus has done for you. This is a daily practice that you and I have to get into. That when you wake up in the morning, and here's the deal, help yourself out. I don't know about you, but I'm not very smart, okay? I don't remember these things very well. Write a little sticky note. Stick it next to your bed. Stick it on your phone at night, right? What's the first thing you touch in the morning? Your phone, probably, for most of you. Stick it on there at night, and it says, remember what Jesus has done for you on the cross. So that before your feet even touch the ground, you begin to reflect on the goodness of the Lord. We need to daily remind ourselves of what the gospel is, that we are sinners and still God saved us, that God loved us so much that he died for us. So remember what Jesus has done for you daily. Second thing, look for and celebrate the little things. We spend far too much time complaining and far too little time being thankful. Practice this with your kids, practice this with your spouse, with your uh, co-workers, with your friends, with the people in your community group. Celebrate the little things. God has given us, man, we live in sunny southwest Florida. I mean, come on. Like, we get palm trees. Like, we get the ocean. Like, we don't even enjoy these things for the fullness of what they are because we're tied to this little string here, like the elephant. Keep our eyes fixed on eternity and celebrate the little things that God has blessed us with. We live in the top 2% of the world financially. Even if you make below a minimum wage here in the United States, you still live in the top 2% of the world. We have been blessed. God has blessed us to bless others. So live like that. Live in light of that. And then the last thing, stop living for temporary satisfaction. Stop living for temporal satisfaction. We do it all the time. I do it all the time. Addiction, sinful pleasures, daydreaming. Anybody struggle with that? Driving in your car to work and all of a sudden you're thinking about all these things that are really not good for our souls and our hearts and our minds. God's saying, stop living for these temporal satisfactions, but live for eternity. I'm going to invite the band to come back on up. Here's what I want to do. I just want to read some scriptures for us and talk about a few things of, give us a picture of what eternity is going to be like. Because the Bible does speak about it. And as, as Ben is playing, you can come on up. Um, as the band is playing, I, I want us to um, sit in this. And so this is a time of reflection because I want us to really look forward to what the Lord has in store for us. This is not a comprehensive list. This is not everything the Bible says about heaven. But I want us to just sit in this and enjoy it. Just soak it in and just say, man, I'm excited. And so when we begin to sing songs right after this, that like we can actually like have a picture in mind of what all of eternity is going to be like that we get to um, experience the goodness of the Lord forever. So here it is. This is from Matthew twenty-two thirty, And I've, I've paraphrased some of these just so we can get our minds around them. We will have a perfected, resurrected body. Does your hip hurt? Does your knee hurt? Do you wake up in the morning sore? You didn't, can't run as far as you used to? You can't work out as hard as you once did. You were the collegiate basketball player and you can't hit those buckets like you once did. We will have a perfected, resurrected body. All the, the pains and the aches and the cancer and the sickness and the heart attacks 
will be gone. (laughs) And we will experience physical pain no more. We will experience no pain or brokenness. Revelation 21.4. This is not just physical, but this is everything. Someone hurt you when you were younger. Maybe a parent, a family member. There will be no more pain, no more brokenness. Broken marriage, an affair, an addiction. There will be no more pain more brokenness. We will experience the fullness of satisfaction and joy that God has intended for us. Psalm 1611. All the things in this world that we try to fill the emptiness that's inside of us will be fully satisfied in Him. We will long no more. We will long for nothing. And we will experience immeasurable riches of his grace for all of eternity. We will enjoy many of the same things we enjoy here on earth. This is something that I think tradition has gotten wrong and it's erased from us. We were told uh, we were told in scripture that heaven is a city, Hebrews 11:10 and Hebrews 13:14. You know what cities have? They have buildings, they have art, they have music, they have commerce, they have science, they have technology. There's people engaging in gatherings and conversations and work and play. Heaven is a city, and we will actually experience all those things. Heaven's not going to be void of of art and food and, and conversations with one another. Heaven is also called a country, Hebrews 11, 16. Countries have land, they have animals, preface that. That doesn't mean Fufi is going to be in heaven with you, but there will be animals in heaven. Citizens who are diverse and unified in mind and heart, worshiping the same creator for all of eternity. And you will be you. There's a Hindu tradition that has crept into Christianity to say that we're going to lose our identities in heaven. That we will no longer be us. We'll have no memories of anything. That's not true. I mean, we see this beautiful reunion in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18 with those that have passed on. We're going to be able to know one another and worship Jesus forever together. Like lost, broken relationships, people who have passed that trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we will forever get to worship our Creator for all of eternity with people that we love. And so there's so much more to heaven than those things, but that's just a glimpse that we get to see and experience. Heaven is gonna be a place that we can't even fathom. That's gonna be so good. And the incredible riches of God's grace and kindness is gonna be poured out for us, on us, for all of eternity, for all the ages to come. Heaven will come and the earth will be transformed we will experience eternal life in him and worship him forever. Amen? Can we as a people long for eternity together? Long for forever together? Let me pray for us. Father, I know that there's so much more in this and I know that I couldn't get to everything. And I know, I know for certain that people are going to have questions because I do. 
But God, right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would settle our anxiousness and all of those questions that that we don't understand and we don't know and we can't wrap our minds around, that we would begin to just say, God, I trust you. And what I do know is that I will be with you forever. The best thing, God, is that all of these things that we just talked about, the resurrected body and no more pain and the fullness of satisfaction and, and the enjoyment of things like, like art and music, like all of that, God, pales into comparison to the fact that we will be with you and we will experience your fullness and the fullness of relationship that you have always intended for us to have with you, that we will walk with you like, like you walked with Adam and Eve in the garden that we will know you, you will know us, and we will enjoy you for all of eternity. God, I pray that you would begin to allow that to sink into our hearts and into our minds so that when we go throughout our days where we feel like we are tethered to some kind of a pole, that we can break free and remember all that you have in store for us forever. We love you. We thank you. We lift this all up in your name. Amen.